0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sarah Petrosilo, Assistant Professor of English Literature at the University of Evansville in Evansville, Indiana, to talk about her new book, Hawking Women, Falconry, Gender and Control in Medieval Literary Culture, out this year, 2023, with the Ohio State University Press. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Yana. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's delightful. How are you? How um, Are you teaching this semester? Yep, I'm teaching. I have wonderful classes. I'm so excited every day. I can't believe I get to go in and talk about Ovid and the Odyssey. And it's just a great life. Wonderful. Yeah, that, that's some great stuff to teach.
0: Um, and I, it's really nice to be back in person again, right?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have small classes, so we get to do a lot of one-on-one work. It's a really great university.
0: No, that's great. Oh, that's good. And the small classes. I say I'm glad to be back in person as I'm sniffling through my cold that I got from uh, the Petri dishes I call students. But that's if that is the worst thing that can happen, I will take this over virtual anytime. Um. Okay, so our first job is to put this book in your intellectual uh, trajectory. So this book comes from your dissertation, yeah?
1: Yes, um, I started thinking about this book. I mean, before I was in grad school, and um, and I can talk about sort of the specifics of the inspiration, but um, yeah, and then it kind of sat. Um, you know, on a shelf for a little while and I thought about the things that I didn't get to do in the dissertation that I really wanted to return to with the book. So um, I was happy to be able to, to go back to that and, and realize this book from the dissertation.
0: That's so nice being able to like ma- write the book you wanted to because there's a pathos to the dissertation and it's really constrained. And then there's this point where you realize that if you have to spend like literally one more month in graduate school, you, you cannot be responsible for the consequences. So you just got to like get it done. But um, I guess really also, I want to know how you came to falconry. Like how did how did Hawking Women, how did that come to come about?
1: Yeah, so I mean I think there are definitely there are two kind of branches. So if you'll like um allow me to I'll kind of talk about each one and how they converged. Um so I was living in southern Italy. I was living in Brindisi in the heel of the boot in Italy. Um and there is a historical character there, Frederick II, and, like, his name is on pubs. He's, you know, in historical reenactment reenactments everywhere. Um, I got married at the cathedral where he had a second wedding. Like, he's just a very prominent figure. Um, and then the more research I did about him, the more intrigued I became. So he um, was someone who founded the Sicilian School of Poetry. So they, you know, came up with sonnets. But the thing he was most famous for was... Falconry. And he wrote this incredible treatise, which I know we're going to talk about um, later. But the, I was in the state archives in Brindisi and I came upon some conference proceedings um, where a scholar who also was a falconer put out there, he said, you know, everything else the state, the poetry, building new hunting lodges, um, all of that came after. Making sure his falcons were taken care of for Frederick, and I just thought, how how can that be? And is the only way this scholar can say this be, is because he's also a falconer? So that kind of sat with me back in you know 2009, um, and then I went to graduate school, and I still hadn't really figured out what I wanted to do with Frederick II. But I um, I was always he was always in the back of my mind, um, and then in graduate school, I just the thing I knew I wanted to do, and this is the second kind of branch um, was look at metaphors that had to do with gender and specifically ways that women's bodies were um, regulated through metaphor. Um, And so it didn't take too long then before I came up or came upon um, falconry references that compared training falcons to training women. Um, And then The side note in that initial quote about the harem, Frederick II's various women, and his hawking treatise, like all of it kind of converged. Um, And so I was able to bring those two things together. But I think um, it didn't start out with I'm, you know, out there really seeing the hawks everywhere. It started out, I think, with that character of Frederick II, that figure, a historical figure, and then really wanting to do something with. women's bodies and poetry and metaphor. But then I started seeing them everywhere. I mean, I started seeing them all over poetry and even like I would go to the airport and see, you know, the, the, the fa- hired falconers for pest abatement. at the, So then I just started noticing them in real life and in fiction and in the poetry, the medieval um, literature everywhere.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there's a term for that. I'm sure of it. Like when all of a sudden you realize a thing exists and it's everywhere. But yeah, I mean, this is, there's still falconry. Another thing we'll talk about. So I can see, and I can see how this, this is just so cool. Um, You know, so your sources. um, So the first one is this this book, right? We're talking about Liber de Arti Venandi cum Avibus, yeah. Right, the Which, art of
1: hunting with birds. So yes. Tell me, so tell me about this. Oh, so this is so exciting because I mean, so I got to do this really cool thing in grad school where I took all of my medievalist graduate students and my advisor out hawking, and we went on a hawk walk um, at a at a falconry um, center in California, and. They had a bird named Frederick II of Hohenstaufen. and I thought, oh, that's so funny. And they said, yes, you know, some of us we still consult Frederick's tome. There are some things he definitely got right back then, and then so his his treatise is enormous. And I mean, I think the thing that it does that is so impressive that makes it stand out apart from all other Hawking treatises, which there were many because it was such a prevalent activity um, is that most of the other treatises, they talk about what to do when a hawk has something wrong with it, some kind of disease or wound and how to how to fix the food for the hawk. But it does it says you really can't learn the training by reading. You have to just go out and find someone to apprentice, which I think is very true. But Frederick said, you know, what I want to do is elevate what has hitherto really just been a kind of collection of practical knowledge to talking about this as an art. And I want to do that for posterity and to improve the art. So he lays down sort of step by step how to interact with the hawk from the very beginning. Um, And and I have read this book many times, and I have met real falconers, and I do really think that you need to actually have that experiential part, obviously. Um, But um, the the way he lays it out makes the that training so vivid in a way that I don't think any other treatise has been able to capture. So when you say time. when you say long, like you mean long, like enormous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I oh, I you know I can't show the listeners, but I have um, a couple copies of it, and they're um, you know over over a hundred folios of like very very tiny writing and. Um, and there are a couple different versions. There's a six-book version that I got to see at the University of Bologna, um, and then there's a two-book version, which is in the Vatican, and that's the one with the um, incredible over 900 illuminations. So he's um, got everything meticulously detailed there. His son added, made some additions to it. Um, So he goes through the training of different types of falcons, um, starts off with kind of cataloging the different prey birds that you would find so even ornithologists look to it as the kind of when ornithology was established um, even before they get to the training part
0: so um i i find it interesting too that hunting with a hawk is so different than hunting with birds right or
1: or or hunting with dogs or in any other way yeah and so this was something where again I'm not coming at this um, I, from I have so much experience with it in real life right I'm coming at it as well like I know what a dog is I have a dog in my house um and that dog definitely responds to a pat or a treat or a good boy um, and is affectionate and so that is the first thing that I think when you read um about falconry references and then read the treatises that the the way to train them, just you cannot rely on those same sort of social um, social hierarchy, um, you know, methods as with dogs, that they're not companionate animals. Right.
0: Nor, and hounds are, well, um, hunt in a
1: pack. They are pack animals as well. Right. 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 And the old world birds did not do that. They're solitary, solitary hunters. Yeah. And so training a hawk, then
0: it is about getting to know your bird as well. Yeah. It is all
1: about the weight. And this is confirmed to me, even when I go out um, on the weekends here in Southern Indiana with the Indiana Falconers Association um, troop, when I go out with them, I mean, they all will kind of, you know, make jabs at each other about your hawk is overweight. you you know, you've he's too fat. That's why he's not responding. So it's really all about the weight, um, and keeping the weight at the perfect level, um, too, too thin. And the hawk is weak and, and mean and, um, not responsive and then too fat and it's sluggish and it will, um, sit in the tree and not do anything. Um, and cause it's satisfied. It's got no motive to, to, to work for its calories. Cause it's already, it's already completely full.
0: <laughs> wow. All right. Um, so, uh, the Frederick the second the his book who's reading this?
1: So you know, I think he definitely um you know wrote it with an audience in mind, starting I think with his circles. So Frederick the second is someone you know who was excommunicated twice by the Pope for like not engaging in the Crusades in the way the Pope wanted. Um, and he, was really interested in people from the Middle East, but not because he wanted to conquer Jerusalem. He wanted to get their falconry tactics. So, you know, he was going um, on, going on hunts, Hawking with, with the Sultan um, and found out about the use of the hood. So he talks about that and, and attributes the bringing the hood to Western Europe because of meeting um, Eastern falconers. So um, I think he's writing, he's writing for an audience of intellectuals um, all, you know, a lot of the um, sort of states people in his court, they were also his falconry buddies. So, and then they also wrote poetry together. Um, so he's writing for them. He's writing for his son. Um, and I think he's writing, I think he really, he says he's writing for posterity too. So I think he wants to pass on his methods because he said, I've collected decades of these observations and I want people to know about them in the future. So this is a passion project. And on
0: some level, it's probably just a collection of all the things he loves, right? This a hobby is, I'm guessing, really. Yes. And he understands that this is, there is a wide, a uh, very wide audience.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting, you know, because presumably in the time that he's writing this, people don't need it spelled out like this because they all know it because so many people do it. Um, so you have to kind of imagine that he's writing down maybe for two reasons, right? He thinks, well, I've, I've collated all the best methods. So the English, they do it like this, but I have consulted with, you know, these four different areas of the world and they all do. So I'm going to bring this as the best method together. So he's kind of said, I have been doing this for this long and I've talked to all, I've had access to all the different people. So I'm saying this is the best method. Um, But then also because perhaps he does imagine a time when it won't be so prevalent, but that's what makes it so unique, right? Is that he's spelling it out when people are, you know, not not necessarily needing it to be spelled out because they'll do it. So uh, that's fascinating. I love this. Um, so
0: you're you're reading this, obviously, but this is not the only thing you're reading. Tell tell our listeners what else you're you're looking at to do this book.
1: Yeah. So um, I I think I was looking. At the Hawking treatises, kind of on their own, and then I wanted to bring in other other kinds of treatises. So I was um, looking at poetry treatises, so um, Jeffrey Vinsaw's um, Poetry and Nova. Looking at that, um, and the thing I love about that and Frederick's text together is the Poetry and Nova. You know, if it's talking about how to write something in a condensed way, it actually writes it takes long sentences and it condenses them, right? So it enacts the thing it's trying to teach. Um, And I argue that Frederick does this with some of his passages and his descriptions of training. Um, So when he's talking about the beauty of flight, and when you train a bird a certain way that it wouldn't naturally fly, um, he's using like beautiful L sounds in the Latin and just really luxuriating in in the language in a way that doesn't seem quite practical, but seems like really poetic. Um, And then I looked at conduct manuals for women as well, um, because I wanted to understand training kind of more broadly, not only applicable to birds, but also, you know, And I looked at um, manuals for training dogs as well. Um, But yeah, I was was really trying to look at those three different categories, conduct manuals for women, um, hunting and hawking treatises, and then poetry treatises which is an interesting combination right on the face of it hunting
0: manuals poetry um i get it now having read the book but i don't know that i would have if i were just hearing it so i think maybe um there might be some benefit to demonstrating what you do if we could talk about if you're up for this if we could talk about your third chapter enclosure okay which is reading marie de france your neck through the harley 978 hawking treatise okay like very briefly if you could just explain to our listeners who's who who even is Marie de France and what are her lay <laughs>
1: yeah so um, Marie de France is a um, a wonderful poet um writing in the 12th century and she's we presume that she's writing in England and that is why she goes by Marie de France um because right if she was in France then she just they, you don't need to say that um, so she's often you know encountered in medieval survey classes today um and she writes this collection of these beautiful little stories that are a few hundred lines each and they're called the um and they contain otherworldly elements, but they're like mini um, romances. So there are courtly um, figures and um, Usually, um, you know, at the very highest level, um, noble men and women. Um, the women have to endure trials, and the men go on um, quests, like we would expect from um, romances. But then there's often some kind of fantastical element as well. And there are a lot of lays that involve animals. And um, these these lays were really popular. Harley 978 collects all of them together. Um, but they're also copied out in different, um, manuscripts kind of selected and paired with other, um, other texts and even translated into, uh, middle English, like in another manuscript in the book in the Auchinleck manuscript. Um, so, so they're very popular. Um, you know, they could have been performed and also read silently. Um, and they deal very much with gender and power and kind of um, and a gender hierarchy. Great.
0: And then um, so and, and then a Hawking treatise, which we understand. OK, yes. So reading them together. Um, what how how are we to understand the um, the the the, the, ver- the vision of like what Hawks represent? Right. How do we understand yeah. women and Hawks here?
1: So, I mean, I think the first, zooming out a little bit, the first sort of question I was asking in in this chapter, and really in the book more broadly, is like, we can't see this connection, but is there material evidence in the manuscripts that, it was, that there was a connection for medieval readers? And this manuscript provides that evidence, I think, because um, there is right before the Lays, and in the same scribal hand as Marie de France's prologue, and um, so, you know, that suggests, I think, that there was not a kind of, oh, we're just gonna cut these things out and and pair them together. There's there's an intention there. Um, There is a two folio Hawking treatise, which is the most bizarre Hawking treatise I've encountered because it is a verse, a French verse translation of Adelard of Baths *De Avibus Tractatus, which is a longer kind of um, dialogue with his nephew and conversations with his nephew in Latin. And it's not in verse. Um, so someone had taken it upon themselves to select just a section of the Hawking treatise the initial um, capturing of the hawk and kind of enclosing it in the hands and then carrying it down and then in- building a small enclosure for it, then a slightly larger enclosure. Um, and so there was, the ju- and then and then, right before the moment where it suggests what you actually do with the bird, once it's grown strong enough to fly, the treatise cuts off and Marie de France's Lays began. Um, so people that have looked at this have just said, those those are the really baffling tastes of medieval readers who can guess why right and i said well maybe i can maybe, guess why um, maybe there, we could guess. Maybe there's something about the kind of poetics of training these birds the interaction that happens between the handler and the bird um, and specifically in this little translation that strange paradox of enclosing the bird so that it can grow stronger and um, with the human and what we see happening in Marie's lays, which are so frequently about women being trapped, women being confined and then kind of busting out of that confinement. Um, and then for readers, specific, specifically, I think um, women readers of of stories like Marie's and even now, you know, including this treatise, that same feeling of I'm reading this within a manuscript, but I can kind of take the things I've learned and Take that feeling with me and have it um do something expansive for me in my person in real life and um, so that was what finding those two things together really sort of spelled out for me and then to make it kind of i think even more fun there is a lay in particular that <laughs> is very, you know, very interested in not just a hawk, but specifically a falconry bird. So the difference being a hawk, right, that could just be any wild hawk, and there are plenty of those in literature references to wild hawks chasing their prey. But when a hawk is mentioned as having jesses on its feet, that automatically categorizes it as a falconry bird, meaning that it's been training with a human and it, you know, if, it, if you see it flying on its own and it's not near the human, then it's maybe not responded to that training um, and has broken away from it. So there is a lay in her collection called Yannick and um, there is the lady is enclosed. She's in a terrible marriage She's getting uglier because she's so sad. And then in through her window, and that doesn't please her husband, of course, in through the window bursts, um, bursts this goshawk. Um, and it's got jesses on its feet, and it turns into a beautiful night, just like this from the stories she's been reading, it says, um, and they become lovers. So, of course, tragedy ensues when the husband spot has someone spy and find out and sets spikes in the windows um, to eventually mortally wound the bird Um, so having that story in the collection alongside this treatise um, you know I think it just it proves to me and I would hope to readers of the book that these are not coincidental kind of you know crazy who can tell the taste of the medieval readers but the falconry was really so much more prevalent for them as a hermeneutic than it would, would be for us
0: yeah so this and there's something anytime you find yourself looking at the past and thinking who can explain this well, you you should try that's that's a moment to try to understand the past so how is falconry or falcons an enclosure and trapped wives how do these things go together and so it's our story then right like Exactly. So, but here's a lot of these falconry treatises. We see that falcons and women intersect in other ways. Sometimes women are the falcons. Sometimes women care for the falcons.
1: Right. Um, And I think, okay, so this is where um, I got so excited to return to the dissertation and do something that I did not feel maybe bold enough to suggest originally. And that was really thinking about... And I, this is the you know thing I love about teaching. This came because I got to teach a course on falconry and nature and literature, and we had a discussion. We read Jean Craighead George's um, you know first uh, side of the mountain trilogy, and one of the books is from the falcon's perspective, and we all kind of came to realize wow, the female of the species is so in charge. And then from reading this, you know, modern novel, I went back and looked at these texts and I thought, well, what would that be like if you're a woman and you know, every time a falcon or hawk is mentioned in a treatise, the name for the, the name for the bird is specifically female, right? Falcon is only the female, and um, and the male is called a tear soul because he's a third, of, you know, third smaller. So he's smaller. And so what would that be like for a human who, a human female who lives and has lived in this society and continues to live in a society today where man stands in for people, right? He well, we know that that means he or she. We don't need to, you know, add a she pronoun. He is inclusive of all, right? Like, what would it be like for them to have this intimate relationship with a species where the opposite was true? And so, my issue with how people, how other um, scholars had used Frederick's treatise, the De Arte Venandi Cum Avibus, on the art of hunting with birds, is that they would encounter that female pronoun. And then read it as subjugation, read it as degradation, read it as um, oh, here's an example of beating down women. And Frederick, for Frederick, writing it, it was not that way. There was reverence for the strongest of the species, which was the female. Um, and so I just got really frustrated with the only English translation available, and that is you know another reason I wanted to go back to it. So the thing that I feel like I got to do that was bolder, um, you know, in the book and really revise it was was suggests this kind of formal aspect of it, right? Looking at what does it mean that in this species, the female is the default. How would that shake up how we're reading all the poetry, all the treatise allusions to it, not through our kind of anthro phallocentric lens.
0: So uh, uh, you're proposing that this is, oh, liberatory might be too much, but
1: maybe not. It's certainly less um you know degrading than I think it had been looked at like the example that I love to go to is when you look at Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew right there is a very long sequence where um, Petruchio is, is training um, Kate like a falcon withholding food from her keeping her in the dark and it's looked at like um you know she she just like a falcon is beaten into submission you know, literally, too, in the play, in the problem problem play. Um, And I just thought, I don't know if this is right. Like, I don't know if did people who practice falconry always think of it this way? And that's why I started to go back and back and back in time. And I'm arguing that by the time we get to Shakespeare, the metaphor, that comparison, it has been kind of altered and manipulated and the misogyny is so much more apparent. But I think in the 12th century, in the 13th century and the 14th century, um, this comparison is not automatically um, a degradation
0: nor dehumanizing, right? Like there's something, right. right. And let's say, let's talk about what is the role or the relationship between animals and humans in this period? How can, what, how can we say that this is not a dehumanizing situation?
1: Right. I mean, I think, so you've got people just interacting with animals so much in, in such a more kind of, um, intimate way than, than we could I mean, unless you grow up on a farm, right, and you have all of the farm animals like living in your bedroom, too. Um, But but even the even nobility, right, like the hawks are in their bedrooms with them, they're in the dining area with them, and they're constantly worried about their um their weight and their behavior and so hawks maybe even more than dogs whom they don't really have to worry about as much um, they're with them all the time um, and because so much time is put into training a hawk um, there is for sure a reverence towards them um, they're extremely valuable in diplomacy they're used as gifts so they're they're treasured um Really highly among even all the other animals that do more of the work, or the service animals.
0: There's a long, uh, but there's this uh, the interaction of humans and animals that was this long literary inter like long has a long literary tradition. You know, I'm thinking of I've taught the Golden Ass a million times, and it's not um it, it, the the animal isn't always on the the bad side of this, right? The the ass isn't always the ass,
1: maybe. So, and this works in the medieval period as well, right? Right. Well, and I think what where this becomes really interesting, like with falconry in particular, um, is that you've got texts where animals are talking and they're really clearly standing in for humans. Um, and... Usually, like I'm thinking of Chaucer's Parliament of Fools, um, all the different birds, and they're trying to decide, you know, who's going to um, be who's going to be worthy enough to, um, you know, be together with the female eagle, the dominant, right? <laughs> The dominant of the species. Um and these birds are presumably like wild birds. And that's I think that's pretty frequent. Um and then the one that really shakes this up is Chaucer's Squire's Tale, where we have she is a wild bird who falls into Canisse's lap, and then Canissey takes care of her using the exact same steps and methods as a falconer would if they had found a beautiful um peregrine falcon um and she talks and she speaks and she shares her story with canacy so this is a slightly this is a really kind of rich and unusual one because um i think that falconers would say there is communication between their hawks and themselves and it's not verbal it's often really visual or tactile because they're feeling their weight but with this particular story um that is taken to the kind of literal verbal so it doesn't feel like a fablio you know or um a a kind of moral story it it feels like something else is going on there
0: uh there is also this other level um the very much less literary level where women are falconers and 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 really engaged in
1: this world yeah Yeah. So I love this. And this was kind of, you know, as I started this, I was I was zooming along, like really happy to write about this and and read about these falconry comparisons. And then finding out that women really engaged in it, it just made it like even more kind of obvious to me that something other than anti-feminism was happening, right? Um, So I love looking at, um, in the the 13th century, the number of seals that women chose, so middle class and aristocratic women, um, and they chose the symbol of a woman with a hawk, and this is the most common symbol that they would choose. Um, And so I just think, why would someone choose... If falcons and comparisons between hawks and women are meant to be derogatory, why would they all choose that, right? I don't think that it was. I don't think that it was unequivocally derogatory. Um, I think it represented for them something that they could do that was active, that was outside the confines of their house, that was maybe um, the only, some of the only moments of freedom that they felt. Watch, I mean, watching that bird fly off from the glove is a very liberatory feeling. And so the fact that all these women were practicing it, I think we don't know what that's like, because we can't go outside and find that that happens, you know, in mass today. <laughs> um, well, and I like to think about um,
0: how to just that women are doing this, and that women are good at it, right? There's Nothing about like femininity, medieval femininity, that suggests you can't be good with a hawk or with a. um, Yeah, Robin
1: Oggins in his Kings and Hawks um, book, which is, you know, he's a historian who has written a really important um, historical account of falconry and hawking in the middle ages and um, he talks about records in which women are paid for um, caring for hawks for raising hawks for treating um, diseases in hawks and for training them and um, they're paid for their services so I mean I think even just finding that because you know often you might think okay well these aristocrats they've employed falconers for them so they're not actually engaging in the training and I think for a lot of them that could be true that they're not doing it of the time. But I still think that we have evidence there having to be knowledgeable in the art of falconry in the training. And, you know, as we get later in the Middle Ages, it's one of the things that um, the aristocrats tried to use to weed out, well, who's just faking it, right? Um, But which is funny, because the mercantile class is reading the treatises too, and probably spending more time with their hawks than the upper echelons. So... Yeah. Very interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. This idea of um, I'm, I'm thinking about like mercantile women or, you know, women like women who are employed to care for hawks in, an, uh, in a household
1: is just amazing. <laughs> it's just this kind of what? Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's the majority of them, but there certainly are records of them doing it, which if there's a few records, we know that there are so many more that we don't have. Right. Right.
0: right so many more. Um, and if you think about the prevalence of just treating us, I mean, across time and space, including by the guys who were writing history for 150 years before we got a chance to do it, like the the female blindness, right? If we think about how many things are lost, how many times just treating male as the default in for, as has, has allowed us to just kind of ignore all this for so long. But then, but then there's, Than hunting then being outside then like these things there's all these domains that open up
1: and right and if traditional hunts with hounds are considered too bloody too violent too dangerous and too unseemly for women to participate in well here's falconry Mm -hmm. um which is so much more nuanced and um you know, even there are some parts of it that have to be delicate, um, you know, certainly still bloody um, when they're catching their prey and they're they're feeding the hawks. um, But it's this one thing that women can do that is very active. And at the same time, Frederick calls it an intellectual exercise.
0: an art, right? There's art. art.
1: So I
0: still don't really fully understand the mechanics of hunting with a falcon. Can you explain this to me?
1: Sure. Um, Okay. So there are all kinds of, you know, in the treatises, they talk about the particular moment and the kind of hawk one should catch. Um, The ideal hawk is one that has been somewhat raised by um, its hawk parents. So it's got the basics of flying and even hunting. um, But right before it's left um, and completely flown off on its own. So that is a ramage or a brancher hawk, where it's it's able to kind of be out of the nest. Um, and so the ideal hawk to capture would be one, like I said, that's not just a baby in the nest, but um, not a nestling or an is, but a brancher. So once that hawk is um, is captured. They would cover it up usually put it in a sock um, and then Frederick recommends um, a method that is still used in some places in the middle east today which is called sealing and one of my chapters deals with this um, which actually puts sutures in the lower eyelid and brings it up um, brings those sutures brings the strings up over um, the head and also puts a hood on it um, this is to block out any light um, and especially the face of humans so he talks about in his treatise, seeing people's face at the moment of capture would associate those faces with that traumatic moment. So it's trying to kind of control their memory by controlling their sight. Um, so. That happens. The hawk is taken to a dark muse, and um, the muse is the name for the um, in, uh, the enclosure for the hawk. There are perches in the um, perches for it to sit on in the in the muse. Um, and in Frederick's time, the falconer would would stay with the hawk in the muse until it was kind of ready to come out. Um, and so they would stay awake with the hawk and people don't do this anymore. They're, um, a little bit more streamlined. They maybe hand, hand the bird off, Um, but it would stay in the muse with the hawk, um, enticing it to come to the glove with small bits of, of meat. Um, and he would recommend also whistling a tune to associate with the getting of the meat. So when the moment, you know, it takes a lot for the hawk to overcome that distrust of, of humans and actually jump to the glove. Um, But then he would move farther and farther away from the perch and have the hawk jump a little farther, jump, eventually kind of start to fly over to the fist. Um, And then once he would be at that level where that, that, that trust was kind of established, or at least the hawk knew, this hand is not going to cause me harm. Then he would start to um, loosen those sutures, introduce more light because of course, the most important part of the hawk's body is its amazing eyes. Um, Its it's ability to see far surpasses our own. Um, So once it was at that that kind of level of um, non-fear with the human, he would bring the hawk outside unhood it and have a longer, um, a long leash on it called a creance, right, which has to do with this word for trust. Um, And it would fly with the creance a little bit farther, a little bit farther until it was ready to fly without the creance um, and free fly from one, you know, either a perch or one falconer to the other one far away. And at that point, um, what's established in the hawk's brain and body is, okay, I can expend the least amount of energy flying to this human's glove. So in the wild, right, they have this kind of rule where they will expend the least amount of energy for the most amount of reward. And um, so they'll go after really small prey and um, like lizards or voles or moles. Right. Um, and those are the kinds of things that are not, you know, going to be impressive for a falconer. So they'll be training them to catch larger prey and um, hares um, or cranes even, um, and, and things that they might even not catch in the wild. And the way they do that is by regulating their weight. So keeping their weight at a certain um, level so that they're strong enough to go pursue that prey, but hungry enough to say, okay, well, that gloved person is telling me to do this. Um, and then, so I'm going to um, trust that that's going to work my, and give me caloric reward. And once the, once the prey... Once the falcon or hawk catches the prey, um, the falconer has to quickly find where that situation is and they'll go over to the hawk, which is um, hovering over the prey and then cover up the prey with Recently, I've seen them do it with you know a piece of a piece of cloth, um, but they'll cover up the prey, use something else to entice the hawk to jump off. So another piece of meat to jump off. Sometimes they'll cut out um, like the heart or the liver or a really rich part that it has to go through no work to get because the human has taken it out, um, and reward them with that really like rich caloric treat, and they'll, so they'll jump off, and then the human takes the prey um, away from it. So. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but I mean I think like the thing that is so interesting about Frederick's treatise and the way he conceives of, of falconry as an art is the aesthetics of it so he says the point is not to catch game but the point is to have hawks that are trained in a way where they create the most beautiful flight so for him the chase right watching the watching the hawk fly through the air to go after the prey more important than if he gets the prey, he doesn't, he doesn't need it. I mean, and that's why it really is a, an activity for the wealthy, because especially the falcons, which require vast tracts of land because they hunt from the sky. So they're flying up hundreds of feet. They're um, hunting from on high and, you know, they might not even bring home dinner. So that's not the point of it. It is to train them to perform these beautiful aerial feats. Right, which also then I, then it, it makes the there's this natural
0: connection with poetry, and right? <laughs> and, and enter, enter the, the poetics treatise. Enter <laughs> the poetics. Yeah, this this really works, um, and the amount and as well that this isn't um this isn't some distant and un- uncom like distant thing you don't understand it isn't like as if you were speaking of falcons the way you might speak of dragons or something right this is common and around you and everyone will see falcon will see these birds doing beautiful things
1: right and they see them you know doing the beautiful things in the air and they also encounter them like walking around, people are trying to habituate them to the noises of the city. And so they're always, they're everywhere, you know, on people's fists, walking around with their hoods on. Um, and so they're just a part of everyday life as well, whether they're in the air or on the fist. Amazing, so cool. Um, well, and so cool, this is not just theoretical for you. I'm like, well, wow, this would be neat. You do this, yeah? Yeah. So I, like I said, I got to start in California, and, and got to do it with a group of of women, which was amazing. There's one incredible um, falconer, and she's an artist as well. Her name is Maria Lehman, does the most beautiful representational paintings of of all birds um, and landscapes. And she really taught me. I have a whole section in the conclusion kind of dedicated to her because watching her with her bird, um, she anticipated its every move. She anticipated what it would need um, just holding it on the fist. Um, and I could watch her body kind of shift really subtly to accommodate it. Um, and it was something, you know, was not sure if she even knew she was doing it. And um, so... So I got to that was kind of my first awestruck moment where I'm up close and I'm not just seeing them do the touristy thing, you know, like you can go, especially in the UK and stay at a, you know, castle and then do that, but really seeing the kind of behind the scenes of the training. Um and then recently I've been able to in Evansville go out hunting with a group of falconers here who have been really welcoming. Um and I mean in in modernity in the United States, you have to kind of pre-apprentice and then apprentice for a few years before you can become a general falconer. So they're they're really concerned about people doing it because they think it's just, you know, cool and then maltreating the birds. So there is a system set up, um, an apprentice system to make sure that the birds are treated well. So um, yeah, I've got to go and see it happen. And the thing that I think doing it in real life, like so frequently recently, Um, compared to just reading about it, that I was able to see and really understand a lot better is the different hunting styles, hunting with um, a red-tailed hawk versus a goshawk, for example, Um, or hunting with a falcon, which, like I said, flies up in the air. So each of them kind of waits in a different place for you to flush out the prey. Um, The goshawk waits on the fist of the falconer. So we, as a group, have to try and flush out the prey really tight together, whereas the red hawk and Red-tailed hawk is up in a tree and we're kind of spread out and I am just, I'm so impressed and baffled, even though I've read about this for so many years, that it's way over there in a tree. We're, you know, several hundred feet away and out goes a rabbit in another direction and it's still able to see it and get it. Wow. That's amazing. That, yeah. that's
0: incredibly impressive. Yeah, I can see why you can do this. All right, Sarah, I've taken tons of your time. And I'm fascinated. And I think at some point, I've stopped being an, a reasonable uh, interviewer. And I'm just like, Oh, you're so cool. So it's time to move, move on. So I only have just this one more question for you. And I can't imagine what the answer is. But what are you going to do next? What follows this? <laughs> possible? What is what's after this project?
1: Okay so I started off by saying yes, the falconry I was really interested in it because of Frederick II but the thing you know that pushed me to to be in grad school and to want to teach literature and poetry to students was metaphor and metonymy and and poetic form and women so um, so I mentioned that the very popular seal um, in the early or the, the high middle ages was, um, a woman with a hawk. Well, right before that, it was the Virgin Mary, and um, so I am really interested in metaphors for the womb, um, and you know, I think in the in the book there is like a very cogent connection to me, and that is the way that the, even the word falcon, which we haven't really talked about, but in in French and then passed on into. Middle English, Falcon um, was a euphemism for female genitalia, right? Which had a great deal to do with how it stood in for control or presumed control, right? Um, And so I'm really interested in metaphors that elide the actual literal connection between a woman and her body. And so looking at how, since Plato, um, men have used the womb as a metaphor for the male mind. In a book that I love and adore but was not able to put in this book, um, T.H. White's The Gosshawk, he talks about an invisible cord, like an umbilical cord, between the falconer's mind and the hawk. Um, He talks about male travail, like a woman going through labor. Um, And so I'm really fascinated, starting, I think, with, like I said, Plato, but especially in the Middle Ages, how the... The uterus is represented and women's connection to their bodies. So um, I really want to write a, a book about this, a, kind of tracking that that metaphor and tracking how we talk about the uterus. And as you know, I love the praxis part of it. So um, I've actually been able to, as a non-clinical observer, observe um, some surgeries and see the uterus <laughs> see inside of it see it come out. Um, so I want to hear about how you know surgeons talk about talk about the womb talk about the uterus um, and so I've been able to kind of go go and do that for real as well as looking in the literature so it seems like totally disparate it has nothing to do with it but it's it's all there it's all connected through yep. metaphor. <laughs>
0: I see it. I absolutely see it. That's fascinating. That'll be a really fun project. I'm looking forward to reading the results of this work as well. Thank you so much, Jana. All right, Sarah, thanks so much. Listeners, please follow, go, go to our website, follow the links, um, and definitely spend a little bit of time with Hawking Women, Falconry, Gender, and Control in Medieval Literary Culture out this year, 2023, with Ohio State University Press. Sarah, thanks very much. Take care.
1: Thank you, Yana, you too.